Coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Ainsley Martinez is an intern for Oklahoma Watch. She followed State Questions 780 and 781 and the Effort for Mental Health Initiatives in Jails. Uh, Ainsley, State Questions 780 and 781 were approved by voters back in 2016. What are the effects of those initiatives? Yeah, so um, State Question 780 pertained to making felonies misdemeanors, so with certain drug crimes and property crimes. Um, And then the savings from that money was going to go into mental health savings for county jails. Um, But lawmakers just now agreed on the calculation um, for that um, state question. Right. So uh, the idea was that having uh, fewer people incarcerated would save a significant amount of money. That money could be used um, uh, to help with mental health and and other diversionary programs. Right. How how will the money they've now calculated be dispersed and and how can it be used? Yeah. So the money will go into a county fund that individual counties can then request kind of like a grant program. Um, so they will have to, um, kind of submit this approval, um, of what they, um, want to use the money for. Um, and they can use it for things like, uh, mental health programs, um, medications, um, and hiring new staff. Are there any limitations uh, to that state question 781 funding? Yeah, so I talked to some analysts at Oklahoma Policy Institute and Oklahomans for Criminal Justice Reform, and they both said that rural um, counties might be affected um, unequally by these ballot initiatives. So um, rural counties are dealing with a lack of mental health facilities and programming, so they will have to upstart these programs themselves if they want to see the same results as um, more urban areas. Is there any way to solve the disparity there between rural and urban uh, jails and programs? Yeah, so I talked to some folks in Michigan with the state health department there um, to see what they are doing to kind of um, bridge this gap. Um, And they said that they actually partner weaker counties with exemplary counties um, to kind of help them navigate it and uh, tread the path themselves. They also provide additional funding to weaker areas um, instead of it being equal. So sort of a county to county mentorship program. Yeah, exactly. Well, why did it take six years to start uh, funding state question uh, 781 measures? Yeah, well, that's the question everyone is asking. Um, And from what it seems like from lawmakers, um, lawmakers really couldn't agree on what the accurate calculation um, for this funding would be. So there were fixed costs and variable costs, and those fixed costs did not um, change even with a lowered incarceration rate. Um, And then other um, policies and legislation contributed to a lower incarceration rate, kind of like um, the marijuana bill with um, 
letting people who were um, charged with um, drug possession with marijuana kind of um, getting out of the jail as well. So there are different things that lowered the incarceration rate. They were trying to pinpoint it to 780. Oh, uh, how much uh, was saved through State Question 780 this year? Were they able to calculate that? Yeah, so they estimated that about $12 million, um, will be um, saved this year. And then they also projected that in 2024, that will increase to about $21 million. All right, what's next for diversion programs in Oklahoma? Yeah, I mean, with this funding, counties will really be able to decipher for themselves what would best suit them with mental health programs and initiatives. But I think more people are calling for um, more dedicated funding to this issue and then also, um, you know, starting these programs up from the ground in places that don't have them yet. All right, well, thanks, Ainsley. You can read uh, Ainsley's coverage of uh, the spending from state questions 780 and 781 and those calculations and disbursements, along with her other investigative work on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Jez Wolf is an intern this summer at Oklahoma Watch. They're here to talk about a rise in marijuana overdoses and accidental exposures since medical marijuana was legalized in 2018. Jez, uh, what did you find while researching the story? Well, it's like you said, there's been a significant rise in overdoses and marijuana exposures since it was legalized uh, five years ago now. Uh, and those rises haven't really slowed down. Uh, it From some Oklahoma State Department of Health data, you can see that between 2017 and 2021, there was over a 200% rise in discharges from Oklahoma hospitals for marijuana overdoses. So the rise is just continuing and not really stopping. Now, I didn't think it was possible to overdose on marijuana. Is that uh, erroneous information? It is absolutely possible to overdose on marijuana, just like any other drug or substance. Some of the symptoms include a change in heart rate. It can either speed up really bad or slow down really bad, depending on the person. It can involve a lot of severe lethargy and just kind of inability to focus and uh, inability to control your limbs and your muscles. So who's ending up in the hospital? Almost half of the cases reported to Oklahoma Poison Centers are children uh, under six years old. They are usually getting into things like edible products, gummies, things like that uh, on accident because they're not stored properly. But another large part of people ending up in hospitals specifically are teens and adolescents who are using marijuana sometimes for the first time. Now, is there uh, anybody specifically that's supposed to be preventing all that? There's no one specific. That's what makes it kind of difficult. It's supposed to be the job of a lot of different people. The laws in Oklahoma regulating medical marijuana specifically state that patients are supposed to store medical marijuana like they would any other prescription drug. So safely locked away from pets and children. Additionally, medical marijuana companies, companies that sell marijuana products are required to sell those products in packaging that is hard to get into for a kid, but that's not really happening. And what makes it even more difficult is a lot of the problem relies on education. So organizations like the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority are in charge of educating and also regulating medical marijuana, 
but they're such a young agency that it's a little bit more difficult than it might be for some older agencies to regulate the things they're in charge of. So uh, with that combination of things going on, right, the packaging and the uh, Medical Marijuana Association uh, kind of in charge of regulating that, um, why isn't it working better? Well, it's because it's in charge of so many people are in charge of it because it is the onus of so many different people. It's hard to make sure that everyone is doing their job, especially because for the last three years, this hasn't really been the focus of pretty much anybody because of COVID-19. So for over half of the time that medical marijuana has been legalized in Oklahoma, it hasn't been the focus in Oklahoma. So people haven't really been able to adjust and learn the way that they needed to in order to prevent things like this from happening. Now, I'd have to guess Oklahoma isn't the only place that uh, is having these problems. What does it look like in other states that have legalized marijuana? It looks pretty much identical in other states. Um, A report from America's Poison Centers uh, from 2022 showed that nationwide, this is a serious issue. There are a lot of more accidental exposures and overdoses to marijuana. Just every single year, the number seems to rise exponentially. Um, And a lot of states are struggling with the same lack of education, lack of regulation, things like that, that is making it really, really difficult to address the problem. Oh, is there anything happening at the state level uh, that might address some of this? Yeah, there's a few different things. So the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority, like I said, they're a very young agency. They're still kind of gaining their footing, but they're making some progress. They recently commissioned a report uh, that came out just last month about Oklahoma's marijuana market and how Oklahoma produces a lot more marijuana than it can really consume. Uh, In that report, they specify that because of this information, they're going to try to focus a lot more on regulating how much patients can buy. So there are uh, legal sale limits in Oklahoma, as there are in a lot of other states. But those limits don't seem to actually be enforced at this point in time because it's kind of difficult to ensure that a patient isn't just hopping from store to store buying as much as they want, which means that some people in their homes have an amount of marijuana that can be just incredibly easy to overdose on if you're not storing it properly. So that's one thing that the Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority is doing. Additionally, the Oklahoma Council for Children and Youth has an ad hoc group uh, that has a lot of different state agencies involved, uh, including Lee Rhodes. He's the chief science officer at OMMA. They are working on addressing specifically uh, exposures in children and youth usage of marijuana. So far, they have just had a few meetings kind of discussing what their goals are for the group and what they think might be the problem. Specifically, they really believe a lot of it is education, a lack of education for parents and for kids about how exactly you should treat marijuana. Uh, So it's kind of... They're kind of focusing on that uh, and seeing what they can do to address kids specifically. All right. What are you going to be looking for from that ad hoc group uh, and other entities uh, as this proceeds? Well, for the ad hoc group, uh, they are going to be meeting more consistently this fall and they are going to be uh, preparing some information to present the legislature to potentially form some new legislation for next year. Uh, to see if there's anything that they can do uh, through that source to address the issue. 
Um, Oklahoma Medical Marijuana Authority, I also will be keeping an eye on pretty closely to see if they, uh, what, what they do from this commissioned report that they just received, in addition to kind of how they start to grow now that COVID-19 isn't the state's biggest issue and they have the space and room to find their footing in the Oklahoma bureaucratic environment. All right. Well, thanks, Jazz. You can read all of Jazz's coverage of uh, the trend in marijuana and the overdose problem here in Oklahoma on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Lionel Ramos covers race and equity for Oklahoma Watch. His latest story looks into a new type of license meant to keep struggling rural hospitals open and what it means for rural facilities in Oklahoma. Lionel, uh, tell us about this license and why it's important. It's called a rural emergency license. It was passed in Congress's uh, 2021 appropriations bill, and it's meant to help struggling hospitals or those that are struggling financially uh, keep their doors open and stay afloat. So uh, in what way are rural hospitals struggling? That's something that's been covered off and on for a long time, but what what's going on right now? Yeah, kind of like I touched on, the problem is mostly financial. Uh, because of low patient traffic and losses on patient services and the way that uh, insurance companies pay out for those, for those patients, um, a lot of them are running out of money and being forced to close their doors. Many of these hospitals are the only acute care facilities for up to 50 miles. Uh, If they close, then the communities they serve suffer from not having access to emergency care and inpatient services. So how widespread is that problem? Like you said, the problem isn't really a new one. It's been going on uh, for quite a while. Since 2005, more than 100 hospitals have closed across the country, closed completely, while another uh, 69 or 70 have transferred to only offering uh, outpatient services and emergency services. And then now that this rural hospital license is available, six of them across the country have transferred. In Oklahoma, closures date back to 2007, the latest closure being in Clinton at the start of this year. Um, 33 hospitals have closed in the state since 2007, and two here have converted to rural emergency hospitals. So some hospitals in Oklahoma have uh, taken up this new licensure. How does that help them? Yeah, the two are the Stillwater Medical Facilities in Perry and Blackwell. And, you know, every type of hospital license, uh, and there are a handful of them, has its own requirements and ways that it's paid by the federal government. The rural emergency license is no different in that sense. Where it's different is in the particulars. Um, hospitals that make this transfer, they get $3.2 million over the course of a year, and that's subject to increase with inflation. Uh, and then they get a 5% boost to Medicare reimbursements compared to larger hospitals, mostly those in, in urban areas. Um, and then there's the qualifications, right? In order to qualify to, to make that transfer, a hospital has to either be first licensed as a critical access hospital, which means that it's, it has fewer than 25 beds and is within 30 or more than 35 miles away from the next nearest acute care facility. Um, Or it can be a general medical licensed hospital um, with fewer than 50 beds. And so what are the trade-offs? Yeah. So, you know, on the face of it, a rural emergency hospital license sounds like a good idea. And for some mostly smaller hospitals, it is. But like you said, those trade-offs are... um, 
really dependent on the type of license that it has before it transitions. All hospitals that make the change have to give up inpatient care, meaning that they can only admit patients for 24 hours or less before they either discharge them to go home or transfer them to a, another hospital um, relatively nearby, right? Some of these hospitals are isolated. Uh, for hospitals, license as critical access. It also means changing their reimbursement with the federal government from a cost-based reimbursement, so getting paid by service with an, a slightly um, increased percentage, um, to a prospective payment reimbursement, which means that they would get paid a fixed rate per diagnosis. Um, and for a lot of these hospitals, uh, that means less money. What about the hospitals up there in Perry and Blackwell? Uh, why is this new kind of license right for them? Neither of those hospitals were licensed as critical access. And, and that's really essential. Um, they also had few inpatient admissions, between two and three uh, inpatient admissions a day. So they didn't have to risk losing money from a different reimbursement system. They were already on this prospective payment uh, system. And they weren't really going to lose money on not offering inpatient care because they were they only had a few people come in a day. Well, have other hospitals in the state applied for that license? No. Uh, a state health department open records request um, shows that most rural hospitals in the state are critical access. So um, one of the things that the chief financial officer said for the Stillwater Medical Facilities is that, um, you know, they did a deep dive into their financials at those two facilities and determined that the rural emergency hospital license was worth it for them. Uh, she pointed out, her name is Courtney Kuskuski, that for critical access hospitals, they also have to do that deep dive. And um, most are finding that it's not worth the transition. So what's the alternative for hospitals that uh, don't think that new kind of licensure is appropriate for them? The CEO of the Oklahoma Hospital Association, Rich Rasmussen, um, we had a conversation, a pretty extensive one about this new license. And he, you know, he'd seconded the, fa he'd seconded the fact that um, critical access hospitals are going to have to really weigh, you know, their options. They get, uh, in addition to their reimbursement, which is 101% per service, they also get a, uh, they're part of the, what's called the 340B program. It's a federal program that allows them to get discounts from big pharma on, on medicine. Um, you know, all of that together means that the next best option is to rely on Medicaid expansion, which Oklahomans voted on uh, a couple years ago. And the reason for that is because some of these hospitals rely on their inpatient services to make money. And Medicaid expansion means that more people can qualify for state-issued health insurance and those people that go and get those services will have their, their costs paid for by the federal government. More people, more money. All right. Well, thanks, Lionel. Uh, you can read all of Lionel's coverage of the plight of rural hospitals in Oklahoma and uh, see how a hospital in your community might be affected by reading his story on our website, oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.